Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome to this short episode. Today I want to reflect a little bit about the issues of mobility, and we've been hearing quite a lot about mobility in some of the recent conversations. And related to this, I want to talk about pensions. Now please don't turn off just yet, just because you think this isn't for you, because that's going to be the very point I want to make today. And that is that this is something we should all be thinking about from early on, especially in relation to mobility. And I'll be sharing my own experiences of this because I didn't think about it so clearly. So to revisit, we've talked about mobility in academia and the value of mobility for things like networking, for getting new perspectives, for seeing the way different groups operate, different labs operate, seeing how systems are in different countries and so on. And indeed, mobility is often perceived as being valuable in our CVs, for better or worse. So these experiences in different countries, different contexts, we've heard about in, in the discussions with Sarah Davies and Susanna Bodka just recently, where they talked about the value they experienced around mobility and the value of being able to visit other places in their different ways and the opportunities for networking and research and career building. And indeed, Karen Strubans also talks about a different type of mobility story, not just moving countries, but also moving sectors where she moved from research into doing more policy work. And recognising the value of mobility in academia, we can also see that there are starting to be more policy-level initiatives. For example, in the EU, there are activities going on at European level to develop some council recommendations on a European framework to attract and retain talents in Europe. And some of the issues that these uh, recommendations are trying to address are around how to stimulate mobility and how to better support mobility across sectors. This is, this is uh, something that's still under discussion and negotiation. They talk about different types of mobility. So it's mobility across sectors, such as between industry and academia or academia to policy, as we heard with Karen. It can also mean mobility across geographies, moving countries. And it can mean mobility across disciplines, where people may shift the disciplinary areas of their work, as we heard with Sarah. And we've had many examples, other examples, in the stories told in the podcast of people who've done this mobility across disciplines and across geographies in particular. So it's, it's quite a common story that we hear. And so this EU recommendation will be looking at how we might go about more targeted training and skills development for people to support them in the mobility, and also very rightly, um, how we might better recognise the diverse skills, especially when it comes to the assessment of researchers. And this is important because we know that a lot of the research points to the fact that people with very mixed CVs, mixed career profiles, moving sectors in particular, 
can often find it harder to be valued equally as someone who stayed in the one sector and one discipline. So there are lots of positives to mobility where it's possible for you and also creative ways of getting the benefits of mobility where you can't be fully moving to different countries and different situations. And Susanna was a great example of this where she was uh, employed in, in Artists University for 40 years, but she also was able to engage in mobility in creative ways through visits, through sabbaticals and so on. And so still able to drive the value that you get for networking and research. However, we've also heard about the shadow sides of mobility and we know that they exist. So Sarah's experiences also pointed to the fact that a lot of mobility choices that she made were related to issues of short-term contracts and that whole precarious postdoc experience and needing to be able to travel to follow jobs. Also, sometimes we know mobility isn't always a first choice or may not be possible for people. And Susanna's story reminds us that not everyone is able to be mobile in that way. And this may be because of issues around partners or family responsibilities or just personal preference for wanting to stay living in a particular place as home. But there are also other consequences and costs around mobility. So some of Sarah's discussions pointed to the, the practical dislocation of having to get settled somewhere new, of setting up a new place of living, getting familiar with different lab culture, different geographical culture, building new social connections and so on. And of course, there are also probably lots of very practical financial costs involved. And I can attest to all of these different sorts of costs in the moving that we've done that I'll talk about soon. And there are yet other consequences of mobility that I hadn't ever really taken seriously or thought of, and that's around pensions. And that's an issue for me now because I've just shifted into a new status in my career because we have mandatory retirement at my institution. So my formal employment as a professor at TUVN has finished, finished end of September. And so pension has suddenly become an issue that I've had to take into consideration. And now I've done some moving myself across geographies and sectors. I've worked in Australia as a nurse and a midwife before I did my computer science degree. And then I did my PhD and I worked as a researcher there. I've worked in the UK in industry and then moved to a university position. And I've worked in Austria. And I recognize that I have been very privileged here in that We've had much more flexibility about moving than many people as we weren't able to have kids. So we didn't have the complexities that having families often bring into issues of mobility. And so we can see that in this case, there are pluses and minuses for every situation. Still, one of the things I really never thought about with the consequences of moving across countries is about how do I accumulate a good enough pension fund to support our later years or my later years? And I think this is especially tricky when you're working across multiple countries and regions and with very different systems that operate in very different ways. So my main message here is going to be think and plan now. 
And I'm going to go on and just tell a little bit more of my specific situation to illustrate. As I said, I worked in Australia, and then I moved to the UK. And the motivation for moving to the UK was not so much career-driven, but more about a health issue in my husband's family who were in Ireland. And we wanted to be closer to the family at that time. And this situation happened to coincide with an opportunity for me to work as a user experience consultant in London. So pension was the last consideration here. It was all about being closer to family and the sort of job I was going into. And then at some time later on, as I said, I moved from industry to academia. So Sometime later on, I was in academia in the UK, but I was encouraged to apply for this uh, professor position in Austria. So, of course, I thought I had no chance. And when I was finally offered the position, I had to really take some time to consider before saying yes. But again, pension didn't even make it onto the, the whole for and against list that you tend to do at these sorts of decision points. And I moved. Because it was an opportunity for a promotion into this professor role, and also it was interesting having the opportunity to live somewhere very different. So in making these decisions to move to these different places, to move across sectors, pension never factored into any of the decisions. And of course, like the idea of a pension just seems so far off, certainly something really ridiculous to even think about. And of course, also the fact that there were some default systems in place in the different countries or companies that you went to um, and institutions that you went to, you, you just walked in and accepted the schemes that were on offer and paid into them as was required. But what I'm finding now is a lot of the minutiae of having pensions across different countries can be really problematic. For example, one issue is that different countries often have different pensionable ages at which people can retire and, and when they can start collecting their pension payments. So in Austria, that's at 65, in the UK at 66, and in Australia at 67. So what that means is if you are reliant in some way upon the accumulation of funds from different countries that you want to bring together in order to live, you're going to have gaps in funding for those years until the pensionable age at all those different countries kicks in. There's also the issue that all the different countries have very different systems and regulations around their pension schemes. So in Australia, in the time that I was working there, there was a move to a much more self-funded pension scheme through what they call superannuation. And the government pension scheme is really just for people who really need it. So there's a lot more flexibility and freedom there about when people can start drawing upon their own contributions to their own superannuation scheme. However, one of the complications in this situation is that those contributions, when they're drawn on by people living in Australia, are tax-free. But if they get drawn on by people living, like myself, living outside of Australia, you have to pay tax on it locally, even though you've already paid tax before contributing. So that's an issue. In other countries, there can be minimum periods for making contributions before you're entitled to a pension. 
in the UK, I worked for a total of nine years. And it's 10 years as their magic number of years of minimal years paying into the system before receiving a pension. And similarly in Austria, the minimum number of years for paying into the system before being eligible to receive a state pension is 15 years. And by the end of September this year, I was at 14 years. So a one-year shortfall in both countries. Now, of course, there are often specific agreements between countries about this. And, and within the EU here, for example, there are arrangements where the years in one European country can be counted in some way with the years in another country so that there's an overall eligibility. However, the processes for finding out about all these and getting all of it determined are really non-trivial. I, I know too that Austria has some sort of a government-to-government -government arrangement with Australia, and I'm still trying to get my head around that. And it is a complex process. I submitted a form in September 2022 requesting information about what would be my situation, what I might receive as a pension come end of September 2023. And I had to document the fact that I'd worked in Australia and worked in the UK and provide all of those details. And I'm still waiting for an answer despite lots of follow-up. And I know it's complicated for them too because they're having to go to these different countries where I've lived and get their public servants in the appropriate departments to provide information to them on my case so that the uh, Austrian pension scheme can make their determination. So I'm very grateful that I'm not relying on that sort of pension payment now this week to pay my rent or to eat because, as I said, I'm still waiting for information. It's a long bureaucratic process and it's also just really hard to work out how to navigate it despite trying to get advice and help. Now, when I did move to Austria, I do remember that there was a bit of a short discussion about the fact that my time in the UK would count because I would only have 14 years at the point of uh, mandatory retirement. So it was something that was brought up. So I can't say there was no discussion about it. But I can say that I really didn't appreciate the nuances and consequences of that. And I certainly didn't negotiate around this at all. So just to reassure, I am able to pay my rent. We've been able to find a bit of an Austrian workaround solution where I've been able to continue working at the university in a sort of a self-funded way at part-time for another 12 months. So at least that will enable me to get the full 15 years in Austria paying into the system. And it's one country's pension that I can be more confident about. So I just wanted to share my story because I know that something like pension just seems so far off. And even for me, I think up until the moment at the end of September, it still seemed far off because I'm just way too young for this. But nevertheless, it is a reality of life and it is a reality of the costs of my academic intersectoral, intergeography mobility. And I want to suggest that it is something that we should all be trying to pay more attention to, especially where we are mobile, or especially where we might be supporting people doing some of that crossing, doing some of that mobile work. So what I would encourage people to do moving forward is, if you are going to be academically mobile in some way, 
And I know that different countries will have all sorts of other different complications than the examples in my specific case. But just to make sure that this is something that you do think about and talk about with your next employer and also seek expert advice about how you might mitigate some of the negative consequences of mobility. In my case, for example, I wonder if I could have negotiated at the signing of the contract to join to you for a special exemption to work a 15th year to get around this limitation. It's all moot now, of course, and there may be other plans or other ways that you could mitigate some of the implications. My encouragement is just to think about it, discuss it, and seek expert advice, and to include it as part of your negotiations. I can also end on a more positive note here, because at least for people within the EU, there's now at the EU level a pension fund called Resaver, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. And from what I can understand about it, I'm not an expert at all. It, it seems to have been something that was set up from a new EU directive back in December 2016, if I read all the web pages correctly. And the whole idea of it is to precisely address some of the issues that I've just reported on. And to quote from their website, it's about providing a reliable pension scheme that fosters mobility and helps institutions attract the best talent. And by enabling mobile researchers to keep their pension arrangements while changing countries and jobs, and it offers a defined contribution and tailored plan for research organizations and their employees. So again, from what I understand, it's the organizations that need to be signed up to Resaver in order for you as an individual employee to be able to take advantage of it. But at least it's encouraging, isn't it, that at least this sort of cross-country regional area, there's some consideration and support of this. And it's not just encouraging mobility across sectors, across disciplines, across geographies, but also putting in place some of the practical supports that make it feasible and that address the real sort of actual costs of doing this, particularly in the longer term. So that's it for today. Just some food for thought for your future. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback and if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.